Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life, work and legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien on this, the 50th anniversary of his death. And we'll be exploring how The Lord of the Rings became one of the best loved stories of all time. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out how the jazz craze affected Ireland, why Irish ring forts were built and how St. Paul's Churchyard in London became for a time the centre of the literary world and if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts Born in the Orange Free State one of the Boer Republics in 1892 J.R.R. Tolkien was orphaned in childhood and grew up in near poverty in Birmingham He served in the First World War and saw action at the Battle of the Somme where he lost many of his friends After lecturing in Leeds in 1925, he became Professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford, where he taught on Beowulf and other subjects. However, it was as a novelist that Tolkien found global fame. His first book, The Hobbit, was published in 1937, and he followed it with the three volumes of The Lord of the Rings, published between 1954 and 1955. It has been noted that his adventurous tales of hobbits and elves, dwarves and wizards, introduced millions to the rich history of Middle-earth. Tolkien died 50 years ago this month on the 2nd of September 1973. And so in tonight's show we want to explore how a professor at Oxford created a world which has inspired millions and why The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings became such global phenomena, including a series of hugely successful films. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. John T. McQuillan is the Associate Curator at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York and the Morgan ran a wonderful exhibition on Tolkien in 2019. I'm also joined by Dr. Barry Houlihan, Archivist at the University of Galway. Well, you're both very welcome and later in the show I'll be joined by Sean Gunner, the Chair of the Tolkien Society, a society with 3,500 members across the world. And then to end the show I'll be talking to the Tolkien Professor himself, Dr. Corey Olson, the author of Exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, and someone who presents the hugely successful podcast on the life and work of Tolkien. Well, as I say, you're all very welcome. And John, I might begin with you and maybe with some of the biographical details of Tolkien. The fact that he was born in the Orange Free State in what's now South Africa, the the fact that he was orphaned as a child, the move back to Birmingham, fighting in the First World War. You know, it there's certainly a huge amount of interest in the personal story of Tolkien, never mind the work. It is. Um, he has a fascinating life story, and it's really sometimes hard to sort of separate the man and his biography from his work, but you have to sort of, uh, in some ways, not equate necessarily his story, his life story with what he wrote, but understand how these major life events kind of create one's worldview and really impact on the way that I think he saw and understood different aspects of humanity because of these events. Um, You know, when you think of coming from the Orange Free State, what is now the Republic of South Africa, um, a very arid, dry climate, and then coming back to England, um, you know, a, a very green, verdant landscape, you know, that great change and how that really impacts his understanding of the natural world, which I think, you know, really comes through in all of his stories. What do you think his literary inspirations were? Because I know how he was able to draw on his scholarly pursuits to to create the world of Middle-earth, but were there other things that he was drawing on as well? Um, I, I think his scholarly pursuits, you know, really impacted his creation of Middle-earth and the legendarium as well. He always talked about kind of world literatures as this great sort of soup pot of different 
themes and motifs and ideas. And the storyteller just sort of ladled out, you know, the bits that they wanted to create their story. And so early medieval European literary material that he professionally worked on, I think those same motifs and themes then, you know, he literally ladled out to integrate into the greater Middle-earth legendarium. And so you have elements from kind of Beowulf and early English literature, as well as early Scandinavian and Eastern European literary tales that he was more familiar with professionally, but then sort of like, you know, bubbled up and came through again into his literary production. He was, of course, a professor as well. He lectured in Leeds and then moved to Oxford and ended up becoming the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature. It doesn't seem like he published that much as an academic. I think by by that stage, he was preoccupied by his literary pursuits. Correct. I'll say I first came uh, became interested in Tolkien through reading his uh, translation and edition of Sir Orfeo, a medieval English kind of very small poem and epic, and not really through The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. So I came to know him more as from the academic side. But I think so much of his time was spent, as as many academics now do, um, in committee meetings, in actually teaching, and not in kind of that academic publishing. That was not where I think most of his energy was spent. The university teaching came first, well, family came first, teaching came second, and then Middle Earth kind of really came third. And so, you know, when you look at it that way, now I don't want to say like you can forgive him not doing more academic publication. Um, there's nothing to forgive there, but you can understand where his emphasis lay in his life. And it kind of was wonderful that he had the time to create the works because The Hobbit was published in 1937 and then the three volumes of The Lord of the Rings between 1954 and 1955. I'm sure if they were being written now, there probably would be immense pressure on him to publish and probably they would have spaced out The Lord of the Rings over a few years to just maximise their impact. Yeah, um, and granted there was uh, kind of pressure on him to publish Lord of the Rings. Um, the publisher expected it many years before he actually got it. Um, and then Lord of the Rings itself was more of a publication demand than anything Tolkien sort of really wanted to do uh, um, organically. It was sort of the publisher really wanting a follow-up to The Hobbit. And so, yeah, if, if at the time at least he had sort of the artistic freedom and literary freedom to produce the work that he run- wanted um, rather than a publisher today kind of demanding a certain time period and being able to churn out novels, as we've seen with the works of sort of J.K. Rowling or George R.R. R. Martin, how how the publication demands and timeline really impact the way a literary creation comes to the public. Barry, we've been talking about Tolkien as an academic. And of course, one of the things that occupied his time was not just teaching and and committee meetings, but also being an external examiner. And there are some wonderful connections between Tolkien and Ireland. But one of the greatest, of course, is the fact that on four occasions, he was an external examiner down where you work at the University of Galway. Indeed, and adding to his academic workload was that task as, a, as an external examiner in the Department of English here at the university, or University College Galway, as we were known back then. And that really came about through a friendship, a rapport with the Professor of English in Galway at the time, Professor Dermot Murphy, who invited Tolkien to be an external examiner, and he served in that role on four occasions, at least. So in 49, 50, 54 and 59, um, Tolkien was an examiner here, and his name is, is printed on the exam papers that faced the students here on campus in those days. And I know in Galway there's been some brilliant work digitising some of these archival materials so so people can actually access some of the, the things that he was involved with. Well, we've made a lot available online, our historic university calendars, listing the staff and students and courses, and, and they're online for sure. 
The exam papers are, are interesting in their own right that show perhaps shades of maybe Tolkien's influence on what was maybe uh, taught or at least there's Tolkien's reputation as a linguist and elsewhere or in other areas. We can see questions on the exam papers about accent and stress and sound and form and words uh, being one sole exam question. So there was a lot to, to work on those questions. Um, a broad range of uh, topics from Shakespeare to Spencer to Elizabethan uh, playwrights. So it was a broad, broad remit that students had to had to take on and not just do the paper, but submit their work to the Master of Middle Earth to do them correct. And, you know, it must have been strange for the students or certainly maybe a good story for them afterwards to have said that they had been examined by J.R. Tolkien. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so he, he, he was on campus for sure. He was a friendly with Professor Murphy and of course his, his time in the West extended beyond the campus, uh, beyond Galway indeed and down into the Burren um, and, and uh, back up to Galway and Connemara so he was very much taking in the landscape and the, and the environment of Galway and of the West of Ireland on his visits. And Barry there have always been theories and ideas about how the Irish landscape influenced Middle Earth you know there was a, a suggestion about 10 years ago that Gollum got his name from a cave in the Burren and there are all these theories that as he was travelling around the Irish countryside he was being inspired and that some of these thoughts made their way into the works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's probably impossible not to walk those landscapes and not uh, absorb it and be inspired by it in some capacity. And I mean, Tolkien was someone who took in landscapes. He wrote, um, you know, these, the landscape become characters in his works as much as anything else. And in, in the Burren, of course, there is Powell Nagolum or Powell Nagolum, as, as it can be pronounced. So there is theories around that and other aspects of the landscape of the Burren, such as a mountain range, which I know other scholars have done work on matching the topography and even the curvature of the mountain range back onto the misty mountains uh, of Middle Earth. And it, it, it can be argued that there are more than just passing similarities about that. So perhaps there are indeed shades of the Burren and shades of Connemara uh, in Middle Earth and in Tolkien's landscapes. John, what made Tolkien or what makes Tolkien such a, a great writer and a great creator of of this entirely new world because when you look at the works you know there's so much taken up with you know poems and language and creating a whole world that it seems that part of the fun for him was not just telling the stories but creating the whole world and knowing what language the elves spoke and and knowing about uh, these side characters and their adventures that it was really a huge act of creation. It was and very unusual for a writer at that time, or even a writer at this time today, to create sort of an entire world in which their characters, their story lives. As, as is well known, Tolkien sort of began um, the development of Middle-earth with the creation of the Elvish language. And so, you know, for anything, language comes first. Before, before you can describe anything, you have to have the words to describe it with. Um, and so I think, you know, it is a very real world in that respect, in that, you know, there are landscapes, there are languages, there are history to Middle-earth that other sci-fi, fantasy, fiction authors don't create to the same depth for their stories. You have sort of a story going through a world, um, whereas Tolkien, you have a world that has a story going through it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to John T. McQuillan, the Associate Creator at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. And of course, the Morgan ran that brilliant exhibition on Tolkien in 2019. And Dr. Barry Houlihan, the Archivist at the University of Galway. We're going to continue our discussion on the life, work and legacy of Tolkien right after the break, when I'll be joined by Sean Gunner, the Chair of the Tolkien Society. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life, work and legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Sean Gunner, who's the chair of the Tolkien Society. He's the second longest serving chair, I believe, first elected in 2013, and he's overseeing the Society's expansion from 600 to 3,500 members. Sean, you're very welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me. Can we talk about the series of events that was taking place in Oxford over the past four days, because a whole series of events in person and also online bringing together around 500 Tolkien fans and scholars from around the world. That's right. So we have an annual event called Oxme, which we run every single year since 1974. And if you think about that, that means this year is the 50th Oxme. 
So this was a particularly special celebration. We have quizzes, we have games, we have, of course, there's some people who like to dress up. Not everybody does that, some do. We have, there's even a Hobbit hike we take place. And of course, we have lectures and talks and seminars. We have some fantastic Tolkien scholars and writers, such as Brian Sibley, who was the writer of the Lord of the Rings radio series. So it's been a fantastic weekend. We had 350 people joining us in person, and then another 350 people have joined us online. We had a very last-minute rush of a couple of hundred bookings. It was incredible, all to celebrate 50 years, 50th, the 50th anniversary of Oxmo, and, of course, this weekend has also been the 50th anniversary of Tolkien's death as well. And why do you think he continues to inspire people 50 years after his death? What is it that is so powerful about Tolkien, about the Hobbit, about The Lord of the Rings and his other works? So I think fundamentally is that Tolkien didn't write novels. What Tolkien did is he created an entire world, a mythology, if you like, which is, as we know, filled with characters, races, locations, genealogies, histories, languages, maps, all of that. I think what it is, is there are different characters that people can be attracted to. There are different aspects of that mythology that can appeal to such a broad range of people. I think that's what keeps putting people in. And of course, fundamentally, he's got some fantastic stories, which is why, you know, even though we had the Lord of the Rings films 20 years ago, last year we saw Amazon purchase the rights to be able to do a TV series and we saw The Rings of Power come out. And also looking at your website for the Tolkien Society, tolkiensociety.org, I saw one of your posts talking about uh, the Lord of the Rings musical opening in Berkshire and that this had, I think, opened first in 2006, had been something of a flop on, uh, 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 something of a flop in, in the West End, but now has reopened. So there's all these other dimensions to it as well. That's right, yes. Yeah. So we've seen the musical reopen in, in Berkshire at the Watermill Theatre. That looks like it's been much more successful than the West End run, actually. And the other thing is video games. So we've seen that there's been the, mass- the massively multiplayer online role-playing game, which has been massively popular, Lord of the Rings Online. We've seen that it's coming up later in the year, the Lord of the Rings Return to Moria. We know that Amazon are planning another online role-playing game. And Embracer, who brought the right to game adaptations, they, they said that made bumper profits last year as a result of the Lord of the Rings IP. So it's clearly the case that not just readers, but, but gamers, people that go theatre goers, television watchers, film goers, they all enjoy Tolkien's works and have such a sense of pleasure that it, it brings them enjoying the world that Tolkien created. I think that's something that we should all be quite impressed by. Actually, all of this came from the mind of one guy and a guy he wasn't doing this for a living by the way he was a in his at a day job as a uh, professor at oxford university and of course he was married with four kids so he had a pretty busy life notwithstanding him creating a whole world in his spare time there are different audiences though even though they overlap because i know some people who love the books but who don't necessarily love the movies. And I know some people who love the movies, but who have never read the books. So are you getting people who have come to Tolkien and the stories in different ways? Absolutely. So 20 years ago, it was predominantly people that had come through the books and read the books and knew all about the books. There were some people from the 1980s who'd heard that Lord of the Rings radio series on the BBC. These days, it's certainly with anybody under the age of about 35 they will have encountered either the Lord of the Rings films first or the Hobbit films or, or now, you know, the, the, the Rings of Power on Amazon. And they've got, they, they see that they see Tolkien differently and actually it's quite refreshing. The other thing that I think is quite interesting is in different countries around the world, we are now seeing Tolkien's works being translated into their languages for the first time. So in Eastern Europe, many Tolkien books are now being translated into their languages for the first time or they're being retranslated with better translations. Same is true in Latin America. The same is true in China as well. And where and the, the one thing that's really changed about the Tolkien Society and Tolkien founder more generally is it felt very Anglo-American. That isn't really the case anymore. We have, we've got members in 70 countries in all, in all continents of the world. And that the fact that Tolkien's become much more global as a brand and as something that people are interested in 
means that people's perspective on how they read Tolkien changes. So, for instance, if you read Tolkien or you think about it, you often will imagine things. So if you're in England, of course, you imagine an English landscape. But if you're from somewhere like Thailand or from Chile, you're going to think about your landscapes. And actually, we're now seeing artwork that looks very different from some of the more traditional Anglo-American artwork. We're seeing perspectives. I, I, I think it's fantastic. I, I, honestly, I think this is a fantastic time to be a Tolkien fan because you don't have to wait for more books to come out. Thankfully, they're all, they're all pretty much out now. There's a little bit more things to come out. We're not going to see much, much more of the coming years. But we've got all these adaptations. And all of those adaptations also say something about Tolkien. In, in a way, they're a form of literary criticism. So they, they themselves pick up on certain aspects of Tolkien's work. So, for instance, we see here in um, the Lord of the Rings films, that relationship in Frodo Sam was very, very, very strong, right? Very, very strong. And that felt like that message about friendship and fellowship was really powerful in how those films it, depicted the story. Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Fulbright? It'll be spring soon. The orchards will be in blossom. And the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket. Let me sow in the summer barley in the lower fields. And eat in the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? Sam, I can't recall the taste of food. Not the sound of water. It's a very, very different narrative. It's all about age, actually. The elves, they're aging, are they dying? You know, they've, they've been around for a long time. And, you, and actually, it's a very kind of different narrative about time and aging and your purpose in the world. And I think that's, I think that's fascinating. I really do. My brother gave his life hunting the enemy. His task is now mine. Stand with me. Ours was no chance meeting. Not fate. Nor destiny. Ours was the work of something greater. Each of us, everyone, must decide who we shall be. I am not the hero you seek. Yeah, you've mentioned the Rings of Power a few times, and I'm just wondering what your take on it was, because I'm someone who who very much enjoys the Tolkien books. I, I I enjoyed the Lord of the Rings original trilogy, The Hobbit, n- not really. And But I kind of thought with the Rings of Power, I came to it with these high hopes, but I didn't really find it, you know, we are a history book, I didn't find it historically accurate based on what we knew of the characters and that the trouble with these prequels is that they need to convince you that the Galadriel of the show grows up to be the Galadriel of of the movies or the books. And Things like that didn't seem authentic to me. I think that's fair. I mean, look, as as the Tolkien Society, we, we exist to promote research into and educate the public in the life works of J.R.R. Tolkien. So fundamentally, we, we want people to read the books. And in that sense, I like The Rings of Power in that it brings more people to Tolkien's works and, and what Tolkien wrote. However, I would agree with some of what you say. You, you know, I think 
And there were things about it that were beautiful and very, very well crafted. I think the sets were great. I think the music was great. And in fact, the composer to uh, the Rings of Power score, Bear McCreary, joined us on Friday at, at Oxmoot. But for me, I, I, what I'm hoping is this show has to be, I'm wondering if it has to be judged in the round because what we do know from the very first announcement they made six years ago that when they'd acquired the rights was that they had committed to make five series. I just wonder if some of the things that we feel a bit odd or don't kind of stack up are more about them having to build up character development over five series. Because, of course, they're unlike the films, which were depending on whether you have the theatrical extended versions, between nine and you know, ten and a half hours of content, they're working with 50 hours of content. So there's a lot more they've got to do with that. So, I, I mean, I, I agree. There's some things that disappointed me. There's some things I loved. There's some things that really disappointed me um, and some characters that I, I definitely did struggle with. But uh, I, I just think that probably we have to wait and see what this looks like. You have a wonderful biography of Tolkien on your website, and one of the sections is about the cult around Tolkien. And what's fascinating is that the cult began in his lifetime. Uh, the author of the piece tells the story of how he would get phone calls at, at three o'clock in the morning from fans in the United States who were calling it at 7pm their time, wanting to know if Balrogs had wings and so on. And he ended up having to change his telephone number. And I've also read about uh, times when he'd be giving lectures on Beowulf in Oxford and you know, fans would come into the lecture theatres and raise their hands. And again, they'd be asking questions about the Lord of the Rings and not about his, his scholarly work, that it's incredible how it took off even in his lifetime. It is, yeah. And it's, it's fair to say that he was, he was a little bit perplexed by some of this. Um, so ultimately, he ended up doing ex-directory because people could find his phone number in the phone book. So to prevent that happening, he went ex-directory and... Um, after he retired, he did actually move to Bournemouth, away from Oxford, to, partly at his wife's behest, in order to move away from some of the attention he was he was getting in Oxford. And yeah, he he was definitely he was definitely a bit uncomfortable with some of the fans. Like he he seemed to think they were perhaps a little bit odd. I mean, he de- he definitely was uncomfortable with what you would call the kind of hippie culture side of some of the Tolkien fandom in the sixties. And actually, that was how the Tolkien Society was originally founded. So our founder, she was similarly uncomfortable with it. Founded the society, felt like actually how Tolkien had been embraced um, by some groups was she didn't like it. And she set up the Tolkien Society to educate the public about what Tolkien really was. And actually, before Tolkien died, he became our president. So he, he was our president. And after he died, his son Christopher said that actually Tolkien should remain our president. So he, so with the family's permission, when he Tolkien remains our president, um, in perpetuo, as it as it were. I mean, he 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 had, and, and I just just to say that you know, our, our founder obviously met with Tolkien, and the Tolkien family had continued to have a relationship with the Tolkien Society with his daughter Priscilla, um, his late daughter Priscilla. She attended our Oxford events every single year up until about two thousand and five. So it wasn't that he was kind of antagonistic with the fans. It was just I think he. Bearing in mind, this is an Oxford Don who is by daytime a scholar, he's a family man, he's an author. I don't think he was prepared with the idea of being a celebrity. And actually, ultimately, again, later in his life, he hired a secretary to deal with the vast number of correspondence he had because he was a very polite man. He was, you regard him as kind of an Edwardian gentleman in a way. And he felt obliged to reply to all the correspondence he received. And because that was such a mammoth task as, he, as his words became more popular, he had a secretary in order to do most of the work for him, but it was still a, a pretty much a full-time job for her to be dealing with the bags and bagfuls of letters he was receiving. So, yeah, I mean, he was, of course, he he, he did appreciate the fans, but I think he, he personally wasn't sure about how to manage them, if that makes sense. Have you also seen in your lifetime the public reception to Tolkien changing considerably? Because I think when I was growing up, Tolkien was very much for a niche audience, you know, for people interested in fantasy and that kind of world. But I think the movies probably did change everything, that it reached a, very much a mainstream audience and they were they were wildly popular. So now you have very much, I think, uh, you know, Tolkien has become popular. 
I think that's right. Actually, one of the things that has definitely changed following the films okay. is Tolkien's defacedness in popular culture. So you will hear people who perhaps have no real interest in The Lord of the Rings, may not even have seen it, but will make casual references to, say, Sauron or The Ring or Frodo or Gandalf. These things are now in popular culture. A few years ago, the Oxford English Dictionary added the phrase Tolkien-esque to the dictionary to describe obviously something that felt like Tolkien. So it is certainly true that Tolkien is now kind of more popularly acceptable. And, that, and again, that was a trend in Tolkien scholarship and academia in the, in the 80s and 90s, was that generally English literature departments weren't very interested in fantasy literature. They sort of felt like it wasn't proper literature. That has completely changed, completely changed now. There are centres of study of fantasy, and often with fantasy and folklore, fantasy and science fiction. You'll see these all over the place. We've got professors who specialise in Tolkien now. And there is an acceptance. I, I think just generally, because those films were so popular, even if you don't like them, I think there's plenty of people who say, you know what, fair, fair enough. You know, fair enough, actually. Um, and I've seen, you mentioned at the beginning, that the Tolkien Society has grown quite substantially to, you know, in the last 10 years since I've been chair. And I think part, part of that is that, is that is that just Tolkien is now much more pervasive in popular culture just generally. Right? It, was, it was much easier for you to go about your life and not really encounter Tolkien. Now you encounter it all the time. All the time you just see references, even in other TV shows. I mean, if, I don't know if you've seen um, uh, the one of the Marvel TV shows, the the, uh, the the Falcon, where they either made reference to the Hobbit. Bucky Barnes even says he you know he was around when the Hobbit came out in 1937. Um, or the Martian, where they make reference to um, Glorfindel as well. You know, these things happen all the time. Just these reference, casual references to Tolkien, because it, it has become so popular because those films have have really But also those books, you know. Lord of the Rings has sold 150 million copies. The, the Hobbit has sold 100 million copies. Tolkien's one of the best-selling authors in all of history. The Lord of the Rings was the best-selling book of the 20th century. There is no getting away from the fact that a huge number of people, tens and tens and tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people, love this book. And so, of course, that's going to mean that as more people read it, as more people enjoy it, we're going to see more fans. We're going to see it more in our in our media, whether that be TV, films, games, etc. Well, my thanks to Sean Gunner, the chair of the Talking Society, uh, for joining me tonight. Their website is talkingsociety.org and they do some wonderful work, including a project, Talking and the World, where they uh, ship books to schools and libraries around the world who don't have uh, copies of uh, these wonderful stories and so making them accessible uh, to new readers uh, in every country. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, Sean there mentioned uh, professors who dedicate their studies and their works uh, to Tolkien. Well, after the break, we're going to be talking to one of those, the so-called Tolkien professors. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history. And tonight we're talking about the life, work and legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien. And I'm delighted to be joined now by the Tolkien professor, Dr. Corey Olson, who's president of the non-profit online graduate school, Signum University in New Hampshire. He's a scholar of J.R.R. Tolkien and has a PhD in medieval literature from Columbia and is the author of the book Exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, which came out in 2012. And his website is Tolkien Professor. Dot com. Corey, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you're a professor. Tolkien was a professor. Tolkien wrote about Beowulf and all of these fascinating aspects of literature. Were you ever tempted, given that you did your PhD on medieval literature, to write about the Beowulf side of things and not on the Tolkien side of things? I was uh, more into the late Middle Ages than Tolkien was. He really specialised in you know the anglo-saxon period and the earlier stuff my own research was later on chaucer mostly and and uh so the 14th century which tolkien read and liked but that wasn't uh, that wasn't his his central study uh in middle ages so i was although i have studied and and, and did teach old english um it's it was never my my main specialty but i will say that Teaching uh, and, you know, studying medieval literature, which, of course, I blame on Tolkien. I was a Tolkien reader all of my life and 
I really think that it's it's one of the things that led me to love medieval literature when I sort of discovered it at university. Um, but, uh, you know, it really, the two things go so perfectly together. Um, you know, it's very frequent that medievalists are become Tolkien scholars and that Tolkien scholars are medievalists. And you've received so much praise for popularizing Tolkien, uh, both inside and outside of the classroom, uh, for having this informal approach, for really bringing a scholarly rigor to the works of Tolkien, but to do it in such an approachable and accessible way through your works, through your podcast, through your seminars, to to interpret and explain Tolkien to this wider world? It's something I, I've always loved teaching. That was always sort of the heart of what I did. And so starting my podcast was my way of basically wanting to kind of to take the scholarly work that I was doing and really kind of merge it uh, with teaching. And in addition, uh, certainly at the time that I began my podcast, which was, near, you know, was uh, in the early days of podcasting back in 2008, um, and I was, uh, you know, th there were very few opportunities for people outside of academia to be able to really dig in and study something seriously like that. And so it was really, really fun to provide the opportunity for people to have a, to engage with academic seriousness, with something that both they loved very much, like Tolkien's works, and which, you know, they they they, they felt to be, you know, to stand up to that kind of inquiry. But again, they didn't have the chance. So uh, it's been uh, just a wonderful opportunity to be able to connect with so many people uh, and really, you know, kind of begin and encourage these kinds of conversations. And given that Tolkien was so much influenced by his own scholarly pursuits, by his extensive reading, you know, his fascination with language and with, with developing and inventing these cultures, how do you think that that comes across how successful do you think that is in the works? Oh, I think it's very successful. I mean, it's really fascinating, actually. The more uh, the more you study both Tolkien's academic research and his writing, you can begin to see that actually the Lord of the Rings, for instance, contains a great deal of his scholarly thought that he never published in academic form. There are many times when he has ideas or notions about perhaps it's an interpretation of Beowulf. There's a passage in the Lord of the Rings which contains one of the characters delivers a line which is basically a translation of a line in Beowulf, a disputed line in Beowulf that Tolkien had a theory about what uh, the Beowulf author was really trying to convey in that line. He never published his theory about his translation of that line. So instead what he did is he gave that line to a character in Lord of the Rings and use the context of that story in order to sort of work through and show what he thought was happening at that moment in Beowulf. And there are lots of examples like that where you can really see his own ideas. Sometimes it's his own ideas about the interrelationships between Germanic languages and that sort of thing. Then these things come up, these things manifest themselves. It was like within his fiction, he was uh, sort of thinking through and embodying these ideas that he had uh, within his stories. And I think in a lot of ways, that seems to have been almost more satisfying to him than merely, you know, sort of uh, publishing it in an academic article. Sometimes people draw these connections between Sauron and, and Nazi Germany, but you really also see, or perhaps more importantly see, strong links with the First World War, because of course Tolkien fought in the First yeah. World War, was there at the Somme, we saw so many of his friends die in that battle. And you see the, 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 the tragedy and the horror of the trenches coming through in Lord of the Rings very clearly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, of course, Tolkien was very resistant uh, to ideas of allegorical interpretation, mostly because those are so very reductive. You know, when you when you sort of feel that you can kind of decode it and say, this is what I think he primarily objected to, that when people were like, oh, yeah, so Sauron is 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 Hitler and the ring is the nuclear bomb and, and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, it, it, it's not just that those are not good interpretations of the story, which was one of his objections, um, but just that they're very reductionist. And certainly one of the effects of that reduction, which he emphasized in the preface that he wrote to the second edition, was that people who were so fixated on trying to interpret the Lord of the Rings as a World War II allegory, 
uh, we're forgetting the fact that World War One had indeed, for him personally, for Tolkien personally, had a very profound impact as he was there at the Somme and in the trenches and uh, lost, uh, you know, three quarters of his uh, childhood friends in one day um, during the war there. Uh, so, yes, the, uh, certainly you can see the impact of World War One. Um, uh, and he's really uh, he really puts his a great deal of his experience, I think. Uh, a, a very great deal of the relationship between Frodo and Sam throughout the story um, is, I, I think, very clearly inspired by the, the the kind of relationship that you know that soldiers in World War One had. Um, so yes, there are so many ways in which his own experience of the trauma and horrors of war are uh, are have been very much focused into his treatment of not only the, the the sufferings and trials of their journey but also the the importance of standing against an evil that seems far bigger than you and that you can have you know it seems like you can have very little impact on and yet you do it and yet you go through and and you do your part and you know that 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 kind of thing i think is very very important to understanding the story in your work you explore things like the nature of evil in it in his works uh hope and hopelessness, uh, the, the importance of human choice, the fact that there are these huge, gigantic themes that are that are really very much at the center of Tolkien's works. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tolkien is, it's, it's interesting because there are sometimes, one, one of the criticisms that you'll often hear of The Lord of the Rings, and indeed it was a criticism that went back to the very earliest days after it was released, is that Tolkien's story, it's very black and white, right? You've got, you know, the characters who are either very, very, you know, very, very good or or they're completely evil. Uh, there are no shades of gray in Tolkien, you will hear people say. Uh, now, that, of course, is a very foolish thing to say, um, and it's generally only said by people who haven't actually read the books or uh, haven't read the books with much care, as Tolkien is actually, uh, he depicts characters with, like, shades of moral gray. He is better at depicting good people who are trying to do what they believe to be right and yet end up committing atrocities instead, you know, in the name of that right. He, he does that very, very well um, and is very good at depicting shades of gray. But there's a reason that people have that reaction to The Lord of the Rings, the whole black and white uh, world thing. And that is because Tolkien is very, he's, he's very unafraid to identify evil. You know, I just like and to say this is you know, it is evil. You know, it is evil to act in these ways. Like these, these things are evil. The domination of others, of the wills of others. Um, you know, the willingness to inflict suffering on people, others, people to achieve your own goals. He was very, very sensitive to ends versus means. Right when you start saying, "I have a laudable goal, and I must achieve that goal by any means possible." Uh, and so, therefore, I'm willing to make these compromises and do these things all in the interest of this higher thing. Once characters start talking that way, it's very clear, you know, the downward path that they are on. So he establishes a very clear paradigm, um, you know, some very clear paradigm. Sauron himself, within the Lord of the Rings, serves almost, uh, he's not exactly a character. He never appears in the story. Um, but what he does do is establish this sort of paradigm of what evil means, and then everyone else, all of those uh, characters who are in those shades of gray, whether they're pretty far down the shade of gray towards black, like Saruman, the wizard, or whether they're just, you know, starting down the first steps of that, like Boromir, who gets into trouble, or like Denethor, his father, the master of Minas Tirith. There are so many, uh, you know, characters, there's so many ways in which he depicts that sort of slippery slope, but establishing that kind of clear standard in the background um, that Sauron serves uh, as evil. Again, it's not that it's a morally simplistic story in any way, um, but it is sort of clear in that way. He certainly does not suggest that, like, well, you can't really tell the difference between good and evil. You can. The problem is that often you can deceive yourself into thinking you're doing the right thing when you're actually doing horrible things to people. And that's one of the things he's really sensitive to in his story. There are clearly great stories, and Tolkien is a great storyteller, but I wonder when you evaluate him professionally, is it great literature? Absolutely it is. I mean, for me, the, the, the number one thing 
that defines great literature. I mean, there are many stories which are a great read, you know, when you pick them up. Um, to me, what really makes great literature is a, a kind of timelessness, right? It's just something that can survive its moment, right? You know, something that is more than just happening to connect with, you know, an audience at a particular, uh, you know, moment in history or with a particular, you know, some, you know, slice of the audience. Can it endure over time? Does it speak to people across generations? You know, um, and then, of course, also when you look at it, you know, can you, is there, you know, is there, you know, beauty and genius in its, in its structure and delivery? Can you, you know, does it have, again, something more than a kind of, uh, you know, sort of subjective and almost, in a sense, accidental appeal, right? Again, that sort of connects with a particular audience at a particular time. And, and Tolkien passes all of those tests. I mean, you think of the, uh, the, 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 all the different audiences with which Tolkien has connected, even within his own lifetime. I mean, the, 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 the initial popularity of The Lord of the Rings, especially in the UK in the mid-1950s when it came out, and then the surge of popularity that even eclipsed that, that happened when the book was sort of discovered and adopted by the 1960s counterculture in America. And, you know, there you have two wildly different populations, both of whom were really connecting with this book deeply on very different levels. And that was just within the first, you know, 15 years uh, of the book's publication. And that really has not slowed down. And it's, it's you know, it's it's worldwide and it's now endured, uh, you know, for uh, for a very long time going on, you know, going on 75 years now. So um, so the, and then certainly, you know, I've been studying the book itself for uh, a long time. And every time I read it again, this for me personally, my own subjective um, my own subjective measure, really, in that way is if I can reread the book and reread it again and reread it again. And every time I'm finding, you know, I'm finding new beauties, I'm sort of discovering new new levels of genius and how it's being told and what is going on uh, in it. That to me is is what really separates, you know, what might just be a fun story from a really great work of literature. And I've been reading The Lord of the Rings every year for a long time, over 40 years now. And every single time I read it, I find new things. And, uh, you know, in, in some of my online discussions that I'm still doing now, um, I, I've just been discovering this whole new trend uh, just in the in, in these last few months of how he uses alliteration and sound patterns in his prose that is amazing to me and I never even thought of before. So yes, uh, it really passes every test that I have. Listening to you, you're clearly so passionate about the books. You read them every year, finding out those new things about the alliteration and the sound patterns. But there is a, a large Tolkien audience out there who are familiar with his works through the movies. And I wonder yeah. what, is there a tension there between those who know Tolkien and love him from the books and those who have reached him from from these interpretations of the books? Sometimes there are, though, you know, I've it, it's, um, there was more tension, uh, you know, back in the, back in the days when the films were coming out, you know, there was definitely some, uh, uh, you know, concern from people who loved the books and were resistant to the films. Uh, and, yeah, and there are still people who, um, you know, Tolkien fans who dislike the films uh, to this day. But but really, over time, that has that has sort of died down. Um, often there's there's kind of misunderstanding because uh, you know both someone who loves the films and perhaps has not even read the books and someone who's, you know, who, who, who reads and loves the books will often sort of identify themselves as Tolkien fans. So sometimes you'll see a, a, a communication gap, right? When these two Tolkien fans sort of find each other and start talking about Tolkien and they will, there will come a moment when they will realize that they're talking about different works, you know, that, you know, when they'll, they'll be talking about the characters and it's clear, oh, you're talking about the movies. I'm talking about the books. And yet the thing that I find, you know, having um, not only been in, but I've been actively gathering together, I, you know, host little mini conferences and things. And, and so I've, I've been bringing together Tolkien fans to, to discuss this stuff, um, you know, for many years. And what I see when this happens, there is, there is still a very great deal of common ground. This is, the, this is to me, one of the things that I love about the films um, is that uh, not only the number one thing that I've loved about the films is that they have brought millions of people to read Tolkien who probably would not have done. Um, and so that, that's, just, that's just wonderful. Um, 
but I do find again there is there is plenty of common ground that even if you have someone who's never read the books at all, um, there is still there is still much of what you know of what Tolkien said and what's uh, what's sort of happening in Tolkien's uh, books that they that they have been legitimately introduced to through the films. And as I say, those two different kinds of Tolkien fans can still have a lot of interesting conversation together. And finally then, Corey, you have a few minutes to just sell Tolkien and inspire our listeners, both in Ireland and around the world, about why they should pick up The Hobbit, why they should pick up The Lord of the Rings, and why they should approach Tolkien and through the books as well as as those other forms of media and and to be inspired by the stories as you and so many others have been. Sure. So The Lord of the Rings is an odd book. It's, it does not read like most other modern books. Uh, I, I'm sure that if someone were to submit The Lord of the Rings blindly, you know, to a modern editor, uh, the modern editor would probably either reject it or they would rip it to pieces. It's very, very different from the way that most modern books read and can be off-putting, therefore, for people who pick it up out of nowhere. Um, so it, it's a strange book. And in many, and for many people, not really a page turner. What Tolkien does really well, he captures the world. He invites us into the imaginative process. He gives us a world which is really fully realized. He places us within this world and he invites us to imagine ourselves in it, to make that world real to us through his descriptions of it, through his references to its history. He has, in, he has built into his treatment not only of the world of his book, but of the stories within his book, this perception of depth. You get the sense that there is this, there is this full history that is as deep and, uh, and, and present as the history of our world. When you find references to things that you don't understand because it, you know, it refers to a historical thing that's been lost or, or at least that you don't know about, right? Um, and, and, you know, which inspires you to go and find out more and, and, and learn more. And Tolkien is doing this all the time. He, he drops so many references to places, to stories, to ancient figures that he never explains. Like, not only that he not, doesn't explain in the stories, but he never explains. And the, the result of that is that people who are drawn into reading The Lord of the Rings find themselves, their own imaginations fired with, you know, sort of imagining the stories and the parts of the world that we don't see within the narrative and all these things, really to, to be drawn into Tolkien, to be drawn into The Lord of the Rings, is not just to be the passive recipient of a great story, but to be invited into this imagined world which inspires your own imagination also to people. And that kind of engagement that he's accomplished is really remarkable. And I think it's one of the primary things that gives the story the power that they've had over the years. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking tonight to the Tolkien professor, Dr. Corey Olson, the author of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. And you can go to his brilliant website, uh, tolkienprofessor.com, and you'll find out details about his online lectures, about his courses and the wonderful podcast. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. My thanks also to our panel earlier on, John T. McQuillan of the Morgan Library and Museum in New York, Dr. Barry Houlihan of the University of Galway and Sean Gunner, the chair of the Tolkien Society. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.